Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. In this episode, we talked with Colonel James Hartle. Colonel Hartle is the Associate Director of Air Force Logistics, and in this episode, we talked about the basing and logistics enterprise strategy. Not often does a staff sergeant and a colonel get to sit down and talk about strategy at the Pentagon, but this is your opportunity to enter the conversation. Persistent mission generation is our focus going into strategic competition, and we talk about how this strategy is relevant to you as a warfighter. All right, here we go. Um, so before we get started, I'd like the audience to know a little bit more about you and your background and, uh, and it is unique, right? You're here on the staff. Uh, you're, I mean, you're a full-time reservist, correct? correct. Yep. So tell us a little about yourself. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Matt. I, I really appreciate this opportunity and, and what a fantastic, uh, you know, uh, pathway to really get the, the message out via this and, and your abilities really speak volumes to the type of airman that you are. But um, a little bit about myself to kind of give everyone an idea. That's right. Uh, full-time reservist, been doing that role for about, gosh, time flies, 13, 14 years. Prior to that, 10 years on active duty, uh, career core maintainer. Um, now sitting here at the half A4L, working for General Hurry as her associate director. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I tell a joke. Well, I find it funny is that uh, I've been a a user and consumer of logistics for most of my career. Um, and not much more of a, not much of a manager of logistics, um, at, of course, with that aircraft maintenance background. But uh, before coming here, I was on the joint staff, J4, had a great opportunity to work with our joint partners, look at a lot of future concepts, future strategies, force development, and, and all those elements there with our, our joint partners. And, uh, you know, two-time maintenance group commander, uh, which was a phenomenal jobs and opportunities, two-time squadron commander, best job I'll ever have in the Air Force. I'd go back and do it today if I could. And then if I back it up even further, you know, probably even better than that is uh, being on the flight line as the AMU OIC and really just uh, generating combat air power in both CAF, SOF, and, and MAF background as well. So I always kind of consider myself the jack of all trades, master of none when it comes to aircraft maintenance. But uh, here I am now in the five-sided building. I've uh, been here in the building for more than three years and uh, really just trying to do our best to keep the, the, the mission moving and supporting our airmen so that they, in turn, can actually do the things they need to do. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit about your last assignment, too. Just, uh, I think that's important context for this conversation as well, uh, because you weren't always the associate director. Uh, you were at the J-4, and you had an opportunity to learn from the various branches of service. Uh, I find the joint staff fascinating like 2000 individuals right work at the joint staff oh yeah to um to really connect the dots uh from a joint warfighting combined arms perspective uh what did you learn there that has helped you formulate your strategic approach here at a4l yeah i think it kind of goes back what i probably learned the most and our, our previous chief of staff you know general goldfein was really big on that joint warfighter developing that joint warfighter and there's certain ways that you can do that. We can go to that COCOM, get some of that joint experience, but the experience was a little bit different on the joint staff J4 because there we really got to see each of the elements of our partner services, our sister services, as we like to say. And we really got to see through their lens how they look at logistics. And you would think that how we look at fuel, munitions, class one food and, and water and looking at parts and whatever it else may be, um, you think, oh, it should all be relatively simple. Well, we've all got different ways to distribute, deliver, and deploy. We've got different ways that we, um, you know, kind of sustain the force. That's kind of always a big conversation, sustainment. If you ask Army what sustainment means, they're talking about beans and, and beans and bullets and, and beds, right? You talk to an Air Force about sustainment, we're talking about how we're keeping weapon systems, you know, in the fight. So that was a huge part of it. But more importantly, I think the Joint Staff experience really uh, honed in on the future fight. That's where a lot of the focus is, um, you know, force development, force deployment, and of course, like force design. And it just kind of came through as they have worked hard and the, and the chairman kind of discovered 
you know, back in 2018, 2019, that the uh, that we we've got a lot of work to do. You know, we're not we still need to hone our joint war fighting skills. We still need to come together as a team because we found that we had a hard time through multiple war games at the joint perspective and at the highest levels of how we would win or more times we found out we were losing a lot of times. So that kind of gave birth to the joint warfighting concept. Um, and from that, we were already in version 2.0. And from that, we've also got the joint concept for contested logistics, which is one of the four supporting concepts. And that really kind of gives us that roadmap or framework for the services to understand what those concept required capabilities are that we need to get after those ideas and um, and other technologies and innovations or different changes and processes and policies in an effort for us to uh, hopefully deter a peer adversary or if necessary, defeat one as well. It just all ties back together and really gives us a good guide to the things that we should be doing from an Air Force logistics perspective. Mm -hmm. Starting off at the high level, when we look at strategy, Strategy, the, the core of the word strategy, I think, is it strategio, stratego? I don't know how to pronounce it. It was a board game that way. Yeah, yeah. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the core of the word is, means what is important to the senior level and to senior leaders. So that's the nature of, of strategy, even you know by definition uh, specifically. And then you look at tactics. And, and tactile is the core of tactics. It's things you can touch. It's things you can see. It's things that you do. But then there's also the operational art, which bounces between the two. Uh, I'm in the camp of, I'm not sure which camp you're in or if you're in a camp at all, that uh, that the operational level of war does not exist. And it's operational art that balances the strategy and the tactics. We have a new strategic approach and persistent mission generation coming from logistics. And this is what is going to be enabling. This is going to enable the operational art and and our tacticians on the ground, whether that is a flight commander, whether it's a squadron commander or a technician turning a wrench, or that's a troop shipping a MICAP. Um, they're all over... With A4L specifically, 180,000 total force airmen that are impacted by this. When we're talking about the A4 as a whole, that I believe is 380-ish, right? 340-ish. Yeah, right, right. uh, I, I just kind of threw 40,000 airmen. You know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> someone will data check somewhere this, there. Sure. Yeah. yeah, someone please, please fact check me there um, that are impacted by this strategy. Um, and... Let, let's talk a little bit overarching why, uh, or maybe not why, but how an airman's life uh, it is going to change. Or, and even to get a little bit more granular here, um, and we were talking a little bit about this before we hit record, you and I have both lived in a world where these these documents existed, these strategies existed. There's another staff, you know, staff after staff after staff has created their version of what strategy is and what the doc, you know, like what what document's going to drive them forward and what perspective is going to drive them forward. And people are also overwhelmed with, hey, there's accelerate, change, or lose. There's operational imperatives. There's ACE. There's all these concepts. But how does this tie everything together for our logistics airmen to make us the most lethal fighting force in the world? No, Matt. So you you, you covered a lot there, and, and and it's good that you did. And I'll kind of go back to the first element, you know, operational art, operational design, um, strate you know, strategy or strategery, as we like to say a lot of times. And and ultimately, that's certainly important. And and but the bottom line of that that last point that you talked about was. Where do our airmen see themselves in this? Why does this document, the basing and logistics enterprise strategy, how do they see themselves in it? Why is it important to them? And I think that you can't go far in this discussion if we don't talk about peer adversaries. And that's really the bottom line to this. And, and we've heard the stories before that the old way of how the United States 
conducted war is we would go into a permissive environment. We would bring everything, build mountains of metal, equipment, supplies, people, lodging, um, in some cases, even bars if we needed to (laughs) as well. And then once we were set up and we determined all of our targets, then we would uh, initiate, you know, kinetic strikes and, and take it to the enemy in a very permissive environment. Of course, we know that the landscape for that has significantly changed, especially if we look at our our national defense strategy and really talking about that peer adversary and the pacing adversary being China, that uh, we've got to think very differently. And we've really got to know and understand that as logisticians, whether you're you know in the logistics readiness arena, whether you're an aircraft maintenance, an engineer, or a defender, or any other uh, tangential career fields, that we've got to be at the forefront of the things that we're doing. We've got to be at the pointy end of the spear. Um, Lieutenant General Leo Marquez would would say that uh, logistics can't be the tail of the dog when it comes to supporting a war fight. We're in fact the jaw of that dog. And so I would say we're probably even more now need to be between the ears of our O plans and be at the forefront and thinking, what are those logistics requirements? Many times we operational plan um, and do the good groundwork of, hey, how many sorties? Where do we, can we fly? What are those targets? You know, what ISR capabilities are needed and, and so forth and so on. And then we provide that to the logistician and then we figure out how we're going to meet that requirement. The game has changed. The peer adversary changes our calculus. So we've got to be at the forefront. And that really means logistics as a deterrent in many instances. The things that we do as airmen, as logisticians, as we maneuver within you know, different AORs as we pre-position equipment, as we participate in exercises, is all about a deterrence force that the enemy knows and they can see. Like I tell everybody, everyone's an intel collector if they own a smartphone. And uh, I think there's a lot of smartphones across the globe. So um, as we work through that, we've got to continue to kind of have that presence. But that logistics as a strategic deterrent just isn't, we snap our fingers and become a deterrence force We've got to have that strategy. How do we get there? And that's where that basing logistics enterprise strategy that the half A4, you know, released earlier this year and that now we're at the forefront of executing and delivering persistent mission generation through the strategy and the four priorities really is the groundwork that really should um, place an airman, you know, in a position that they know and understand that uh, it's no longer just, hey, tell me what your requirement is and I'll see if I can fulfill it. It is now, this is what our capabilities and capacities are with logistics. How can we ensure that we can maximize that to get the the greatest operational effect on the enemy as possible? And that's kind of what the strategy and its four priorities kind of outline for us mm-hmm. and, and give us kind of a guiding light and a uh, and a way to kind of bring to life that persistent mission generation. Mm-hmm. I'd like to, to go back and, and dig into peer adversaries a little bit more into the conversation, but... Uh, I think we, I, I think a perfect segue here is to talk now about those four pillars specifically uh, about persistent mission generations. Just brought brought it up. Uh, what are those four pillars specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you've you've got to kind of look at the the four priorities that are in there. And if you can, uh, always got to say one thing. And I I, I find it funny, but uh, maybe the listeners won't. But any document of strategy that comes from the Pentagon is something that uh, if you can read the whole thing, number one, good on you. But if you're like most of us, you get to about page three or four and either you get really bored or you fall asleep. So we've really tried to kind of um, uh, bring this strategy to life. And we've done a lot of uh, advertising and branding and especially with uh, persistent mission generation. But to the point, those four priorities, as we look at priority one, and they're really no particular order, but I I think you kind of see why we've put them in this order. And the first one is, is conducting logistics under attack slash persistent logistics. And and we just kind of use that slash because we kind of just want to make sure that we really understand that conducting logistics under attack can sometimes be very focused at times. Persistent logistics maybe opens that aperture a little bit, but more worry about that. But as we look at that persistent logistics element, it's no mistake that the first objective under that priority is gaining decision advantage. We all know that we are swimming in gobs 
and mega tera, I'm sure there's gigabytes, whatever that uh, sequence goes <laughs> of data, of logistics data. And we are doing a phenomenal job um, with the teammates across the enterprise to capture that data, get it housed on a platform known as Blade. We won't go into the Blade discussions here, but if any of the listeners would like to have more information, we've got some other podcasts on that subject as well. But as we look at look at that and we, we start bringing a lot of that information together, I think it's going to be interesting as we then utilize the analytics capabilities that we have throughout, just not the Department of Defense, but in the civilian sector to get the right decisions made from the data that is available. What is the data really telling us? You know, not just to put it in the hands of an airman and, hey, here's all the data in one place, now go figure it out. But hey, let's utilize artificial intelligence. Let's utilize machine learning to provide us some of those critical decisions that could need to be made, especially if we look um, against a peer adversary. And then as we kind of move through that um, decision advantage, we really get into setting the theater. Think of pre-positioning. We've got to have the things that we need at the time that we need them or really before we need them so we can conduct, um, you know, combat capability, you know, against the enemy or, or deterrence factor as well. And you just kind of keep working through and it's all about working with our joint uh, partners, working with our allies and kind of bringing a lot of that together. And, and that's really what it really comes down to with that first priority of persistent mm-hmm. logistics. I would like to dig a little deeper in from the from a data perspective and, and uh, gaining a like a decision advantage. Uh, is that, did I get that right? You did. You did. Okay. Uh, gaining a decision advantage. Um, I not to selfishly bring up Tesseract and Torque, but I think it's uh, I think that's one example of how airmen are playing a role in gaining that decision advantage. If we are able to input data at the point of execution and we are we have a real-time picture of what's going on that feeds into the rest of our operation right now now a a squadron commander uh has a better picture of aircraft availability and what's going on in 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 that world uh that gives ops a better understanding of what aircraft they can leverage you know in the battle space so just one small tool just to tie into that strategic picture of, all right, hey, this this is helping us make better decisions. And now when we have cleaner and quality data uh, at that point, hey, now we can start creating less biased uh, artificial intelligence and, and machine learning capabilities so we can better predict and so we can better execute in, in the future state. Uh, because when, when, as you look at, you know, the, the past, you look at the past, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, Hey, a lot, a lot of this is is hand jammed. A lot of this is um, is dated, insufficient, inaccurate data. Um, where now we're at a position where we're we're giving airmen these tools to um, to let us make higher quality strategic decisions, you know, at the tactical level. So I think I just wanted to tie that in there for our listeners. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I'll kind of add a little bit to that because it's I think we're we're doing a a decent job getting the tools to our airmen. We need to do better. We need to move faster. I, I think we are, but it's never going to be good enough, fast enough. Yeah. So we'll continue to work that. But you kind of bring up a good point that that decision advantage, and it really comes down to the war fight. And as we as we go through our exercises, especially those ace-like exercises, know that the fight is going to require us to be very dispersed, but we will have to come together, aggregate forces, execute you know kinetic fires, and then disaggregate for survival. And that is where those decisions need to be made at the at and in at a time and and uh in the time continuum where we have the advantage and we could do that aggregation and disaggregation to bring those desired effects. So that's exactly perfect, right? As we're out executing, as we're out doing those exercises, they're gonna be unlike anything we've ever done before. Mm-hmm. It's our airmen have got to see, hey. I get this. I understand this. Now I know why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, as many times we just might, hey, another exercise, put on Kim gear and and go, you know, to some you know great location for a few days, right? <laughs> as we go forward. But no, really good. No, absolutely. And I also want to dive a little deeper into uh, joint interoperability. That's a words are hard. Right? Yeah, sure, absolutely. <laughs> we we get it. Yep. Uh, and, and allied as well. Uh, and then we'll move on to the next um, uh, the next piece here. As airmen or 
across the joint force, I find it uh, find it interesting that a lot of times when we meet someone from another service at work, it's like, oh, you're the only Marine I know. Okay, you're the only sailor I know. You're the only guardian I know, etc. You know, fill in the blank, soldier, whoever it may be. And we, we don't have necessarily those those relationships and that more importantly, the understanding of mission sets. Uh, I, I have a I, I've been lucky enough to have some joint perspective and understanding, um, you know, particularly from from a Marine Corps lens and, and appreciation for that that mission set. But most people don't. Right. Um, what do you think uh, is an, an optimal resource for our airmen right now to, to really gain uh, an understanding from, from a joint and allied perspective. Because um, in the battle space, you know, maybe this is maybe this is outside the scope of, of this particular conversation, but um, when we're in the battle space, we're going to be working alongside these folks. That's right. Right. Uh, when we're talking ACE, I'm just going to make some wild guesses here because I'm not, I mean, I'm not read into any of this stuff, but uh, when an Air Force civil engineer is on the ground, it's, there's probably going to be next to a CB. That's right. Right. When a defender is along the perimeter of, of a base, right. And in a far off land, it's probably going to be next to a soldier, Marine infantryman, more than likely. Uh, and how can we, how can we start building these relationships? Is it in joint PME? Is it through, or is there like particular texts that you would lean on? Um, and, and then from, from a specifically a logistics perspective, are there any, are any resources you would recommend to that, to that young officer, to that young NCO, uh, to have a better understanding? Yeah, right. I think it's going to come down to those airmen that are at the pointy end of the spear, that are in the theater, that get those opportunities to work with our joint partners and then also our allies. And I, and I bring up, I think we're doing the right thing, and I bring up the F-35 as a perfect example, right? The Marine Corps and the Navy, they fly F-35s. The uh, Our friends from Australia, they fly F-35s. We love the Aussies. That, oh, absolutely. We do. <laughs> absolutely, we do. You know, but of course, United Kingdom's flying F-35s as well. But but this will stay in, the, in that one theater, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because in Australia's backyard, obviously, is that that peer pacing adversary China. I think you can see, and we need to take advantage of those opportunities where we can stand side by side with our joint partners and our allies and do a lot of the same tasks. Communicate. We're working really hard, you know, through the... Uh, bureaucratic processes to be able to uh, load munitions, you know, between uh, between countries, right? If if we're loading AIM-120s on our F-35s, why can't an Aussie also do the same and vice versa, you know, and kind of the same sometimes the Navy and the Marine Corps, but just kind of just because that airplane lands at a location and it's not yours or doesn't have an Air Force tail flash on it, why, why can't we not maintain and, and service and and do an integrated combat turn to turn that airplane and get it back in the back in the air and back in the fight. I think that'll be critical. So that's kind of like the best example that we've got. But we've also got to know and understand that as we go into these locations, you know, there's no such thing as Air Force fuel. Although Navy and Air Force fuel, that's a whole other subject. Yeah. But there's a lot of different <laughs> additives and requirements based on if you're landing on an aircraft carrier. But, you know, the fuel's fuel. And uh, we've got to be able to be able to, to share that. No one single person owns that entity. The same thing goes with munitions. And as we continue to, to maintain, you know, we shouldn't have an airplane broke on a ramp because the air the United States Air Force owns the part. We can't issue it to their Australians to fix their airplane and get it back in the fight. Unbelievable that we have a lot of those restrictions, but we got to continue to work through those. But that's what I really think about, which about joint interoperability and our working with our allies and partners. That's what I really see. And that is where we get success. And we are working really hard. Um, Major General Hurry has done phenomenal work, especially with the Australians, and, and really kind of bringing a lot of those um, elements to light and really getting after a lot of those actions to make that a reality. And we're much closer today than we were a year ago. So I, I expect a year from now, we're, we're going to be even closer where um, most of those uh, bureaucratic restraints are, are lifted and we're able to do so much more with our partners. Action order B. That's right? it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
let's move on to the next priority here. Um, agile airmen. Yep. Uh, can you walk us through what that means? Yeah. So, you know, we really come down to it. And if you, when you read the strategy and, and you'll see develop the airmen we need and knowing and understanding, we're really talking about agile airmen. And that really is, it's more than MCA. That's what, that, you know, this week at AFA, we had a lot of traffic through our persistent mission generation booth. And that is probably the one subject that everyone was interested in, especially if you're a, a, a group or squadron commander, you know, you want to know how you're preparing your airmen for that peer fight um, as we go forward. Um, but what that really brings into it, yes, it is part of that multi-capable airmen elements. What are those things that we need to train our airmen to do? you know, it potentially in an austere environment. We'd also need to ensure that they're resilient and they're able to understand and cope with living, working, fighting in a comms denied environment. You know, think of uh, a really bad day, right? You've got no comms, you're trying to launch combat sorties and you're having to duck and cover because you got inbound threats coming in at you. You know, how do we build that resiliency for our airmen um, to work through that as well? I think we also... I've got to work really hard to know and understand that so much innovation, you know, and plug for Tesseract, right? You know, so much innovation exists throughout our Air Force, and we really need to tap into the innovation. I like to say, if I could find the innovation that makes it a really bad day for our enemies, that's the innovation I want to put to the front, to the front of the line and get after and work to scale that as well. But that culture of innovation is critically important, and the, and the role that we're playing here, especially with our Tesseract team, is, is huge. And I will also tell you that part of that agile airman, so, hey, we got that multi-capable airman element that I talked about. We've got the the need for them to be resilient, the the definite requirement for them to be innovative, but we're going to start training our airmen differently. We're going to ask them to do things that they haven't done in the past. Now, we got to crawl, walk, run, but, I, you know, not kind of getting ahead of those folks that are working through that exercise process. But I think we're going to see a, a time where they're not easy. I remember being in Kunsan and 35th AMU OIC push it up Pantons. Uh, we <laughs> we we would always win the war. You know, by Friday of the week long exercise, we would always win. I think we're not going to play exercises where we lose. The best example, I like to say, we would get the IG inject card. Oh yeah, your 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 communications have have been disrupted, which meant. Turn your laptops off for an hour, no cell phone activity, and all of your LMRs, you know, on the flight line. Turn those off for an hour. Well, why don't you do do that for a day or, or do it for an entire exercise? Or better yet, as you move forward and you go forward and, and you have three chalks, you know, three C-130s to move you, your forces and equipment mm-hmm. into a combat location. What if one of those C-130s gets taken out? What if you now only have two airplanes worth of supplies and personnel. How do you continue to generate that combat sortie? So that's those 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 wartime skills that I think we probably need to get to. We can't get there today, but it's a crawl, walk, run scenario where we're going to try and make that a little bit more, um, a little bit hard, more hard, more difficult, mm-hmm. you know, to really kind of, because it builds back into resiliency. Hey, what innovations can help us, right? Hey, and what, what skills do we need for that multi-capable airman? And then of course, to do all of that, there's got to be that training element to it. And we're really, you know, that the air staff and the match comms are working hard to really modernize training and that proficiency. And I think this is probably my opinion where we probably need to invest most of our time and effort, because if I can train you faster, if I can get you to the fight, uh, you know, being uh, better trained, you know, more proficient in your, in your tasks that we need and require you to do, then uh, we're going to be better off and we're going to be able to uh, you know, defeat the enemy faster or really deter the enemy better. Once again, going back to logistics as a strategic deterrent, you know, if we're able to to train you better, train you faster and get you to the fight, then uh, we're going to be better off for that. And that's really developing that airman we need. That is that agile airman that is critical. Obviously, none of the strategy is possible without it and is, is critically important as we continue to move forward. Mm-hmm. Mission command comes to mind. And the empowering airmen to make decisions, to understand the context of, of the world around them in, in those austere, difficult environments. Um, and the Clausewitz quote comes to mind with uh, um, 
I mean, I, I might screw this one up too. Uh, where everything in war might be easy, right? Like, hey, we might be able to follow it. You know, a TO might be one, two, three, four, five. Uh, but everything, even if it's simple, will be difficult, right? Uh, just because of the, the demands that are, that are going to be placed on us. You know, you mentioned the future battle space in those austere environments. And, and what comes to mind, historically speaking, is uh, I'm not sure how familiar, familiar words again are hard. I need another cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, what comes to mind is the Battle of Guadalcanal. And in a truly contested, you know, contested logistics, you know, peer-to-peer fight. Like, you know, Guadalcanal was in, in 1942, the first offensive action by the United States in the Pacific, uh, you know, initiated by, you know, the, the Navy and Marine Corps. And we had supply lines cut. We had our airfield, you know, Henderson Field, you know, constantly under attack. Uh, and and the Japanese had similar constraints, right? And and we, uh, you had maintainers. And I, and I think of those maintainers on the ground. Like, imagine, like, you're not getting your parts. You're not getting your people. You're not getting food. Um, and, and, and you're catching your water in your canteen, right? Um, and, and looking out in the ocean and seeing your supply ships sinking, literally sinking, like it's right in front of you. How do we prepare our airmen for that, right? And then it's like in, through all the things that you, you're – that was a rhetorical question because you know, we're talking about advancing training, making like hard, realistic perspectives as to what the future battle space – like, what is it really going to look like for you know, an airman in a logistics readiness squadron, a maintenance squadron, civil engineering, or force protection? It's going to be totally dif- different than um, than what we've experienced the last two decades. And even, you know, the chief mentioned that uh, as well, you know, reiterating, we have a perspective of what war fighting looks like. And we lost that, that uh, we lost that edge because our, our, our peer adversaries have matched or continued to match our way of war and not to get too far down a rabbit hole but i find it incredibly interesting that when you look at how long they've tried to match us those roots i'm not sure if you've read the long game uh um fantastic book Mm -hmm. and he talks about in the gulf war that's really where china began to revolutionize their perspective and see like oh wow this is the this is the future conflict um and and I would highly recommend to the listeners out there to pick up um, a text uh, called Unrestricted Warfare, which is not necessarily Chinese doctrine, but um, it is a popular text um, for uh, if you're looking at the critical vulnerabilities and of uh, of the American way of war and 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 how and now we got to put ourselves in a position of how do we prepare not just from the strategic level, but the individual airmen to be able to endure those things, the um, the hardship, the true friction, and the fog of war. Um, so this particular this particular priority uh, hits home for me just because of all those those areas. So sorry no, for that little muse there. But. No, absolutely, Matt. I'll just add to that a little bit. There's a great um, podcast by War on the Rocks where they have interviewed General Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps. And the Marines are taking a very concerted effort to ensure that their platoon commanders and sergeants are empowered to make very difficult decisions in lieu of higher headquarters guidance because they're kind of predicting a really bad day and what it's going to take to continue to fight or take the fight to the enemy. And I think we're doing the same way, maybe not as uh, verbose as the Marine Corps is, as we look at, you know, a lot of the work with our competency-based training, you know, that we're moving to or have moved to, and a lot of the investments that we're making in our airmen, you know, and the, and the training and and uh, a lot of the works for their resiliency and, and so forth, right? So um, I, I think we're moving in the right direction. The Marine Corps is certainly moving in the right direction. Recommend. It's great. I think it's a 19-minute podcast by General Berger. Um, on War on the Rocks that that probably uh, we're, we are um, imitating, not imitating, that's like a bad word. We're, uh, we're copying kind of what they're doing in, mm-hmm. in many instances, trying to prepare, prepare our airmen 
for mm-hmm. that really tough situation or that really bad day when they got to make some very difficult decisions without higher headquarters influence or or guidance. Mm-hmm. Just to go down this rabbit hole a little bit longer. All right. <laughs> <it's great. laughs> and what I find, in, you know, you said we're, you know, we're we're comparing and contrasting the Air Force and Marine Corps in this sense. What the Marine Corps does a little differently is they subordinate their decision making to building that rifleman and empowering yes, that rifleman. That's exactly right. In the Air Force, we naturally incline and we're biased towards subordinating our decision making to aircraft. And that is an interesting dichotomy there of the the technical nature of air power and then the human nature of war that, let's say, that the Marine Corps or the Army uh, emphasizes. Uh, so I would encourage leaders out there to not lose sight of like, hey, like you might have an MC rate. You're like, and another thing is like, when you look at what we do in peacetime and what we do in wartime as an air power entity, it looks strikingly similar on paper, right? So we can get lost in those details. You know, when we're looking at exercises, right? Like, hey, if I'm generating sorties, generating a sortie in peacetime looks very similar to generating a sortie in wartime to an extent, right? Yeah. Uh, of course, like real shots aren't being fired, but uh, at home station as a, as a maintainer or logistician, it might not, you know, it, it might feel the same, right? Because we can imitate it. Whereas that's not the same uh, with our brothers and sisters in, in, uh, in frontline combat arms, right? It looks totally, you know, it looks totally different um, the way you, you know, you conduct it, uh, you know, their exercises and, and, and they count, we count, uh, uh, how many aircraft are out of commission in a future fight, we're going to be counting how many, you know, people aren't coming home. That's right. Right. That's right. Um, so accelerate change or lose and force design 2030 are probably the two most overt change management strategies by branches of service in, uh, in decades. Um, yeah. I don't know if the Navy has anything similar because it's not in the press. I don't know if the Army has anything similar, but I know that the like General Brown and General Berger, who are good friends, by the way, um, are executing change management strategies that get after accelerating change, right? And they're different in their different respects, and they emphasize the warfighter. And when you look at Action Order A and attributes, and like, hey, let's find the attributes for airmen. That's right. uh, that are um, uh, that are going to make us successful in the future fight, and then um, the commandant of the Marine Corps, Force Design Twenty Thirty, goes is going down a campaign of learning. That's right, is what they call it. And like, how, like let's give, you know, we have our A One Cs, right? They got their Lance Corporals, which is totally different beast. Hey, take this technology, take this idea, let's break it, let's figure out what's what what doesn't work, so we don't learn the hard way in the future. Um, that. You know where it's going to be like the consequences are going to be that much more you know serious that's right yep. so i'll get off my soapbox here in my no that's news, good but. that's absolutely good but it kind of gets to the point where why when i probably said a few times now that really bad day we try to prevent that from happening to pray as as logisticians becoming that strategic deterrent mm-hmm. that deterrence factor right so yeah so we got to be strong in logistics we got to operationalize logistics we got to have logistics superiority Mm-hmm. You know, and then that really shows that, uh, you know, our pacing peer adversary that maybe, maybe it's not, not today. If we can keep them thinking every day, not today, mm-hmm. then we're doing our job well. So no, very good point. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, I got so many other things I want to talk about, but we're going to stay on target, target with that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> with the, with the priorities. Uh, so now let's talk about focused readiness. I, I feel like readiness is a, a nebulous topic for, uh, you know, for, for a frontline airmen to hear like, Hey, like they hear it all the time, but what, what does let's focus on readiness for a second here. Yeah, absolutely. So focus readiness. And, and I, you know, people look at me strange when I say, if you look at all these priorities, right, we talked about, you know, conducting logistics under attack and persistent logistics. I mean, that's kind of hard, right? That's not easy. Hey, developing the airmen we need <clears throat> is probably, I would say the most uh, uh, rewarding per se, because there's a lot of, of goodness there and we're really helping our airmen. And then we kind of get to focused readiness, right? You know, hey, generating that airbus we need while at the same time trying to control or even reduce costs. So if if, if people could see my arms right now, we, we need to increase readiness 
while at the same time try to reduce cost. I mean, that, that's an oxymoron. I mean, if you go back just to MC80, you know, previous, well, two Secretary of Defenses ago, and and really and take a look at what that entailed was a lot of money in the billions of dollars to get F-35s, F-16s, F-22s, and, and some other platforms just to a mission capability rate of 80%. So, hey, I need more money to increase readiness. Well, unfortunately, um, you know, the, the pockets of, uh, of, our, of our budgets are, are not bottomless. There's a, a limit to the amount of resources that we get. So we've got to be really, really smart in what we do with our money. And at many times, you know, we've put bad money after bad money and have not made some smart decisions. Not that we knowingly made uh, bad decisions, but at the time they sounded smart. So we just got to get that right, that right analysis, determine the risk to every dollar that we spend to make sure that uh, we're getting the most bang for the buck to use that that old saying, right? To, to make sure that we're really getting that way. And we really do that, we, you know, through a, a number of efforts is, is we got to know what the, that requirements validation and, and sourcing is, right? Hey, do we, do we have the right requirements coming forward as we try and go through that corporate process? You know, we talked a little bit about trying to determine and articulate the right risk and the dollars that we put towards that, you know, and, and of course, knowing that we've got to get those dollars to the right priorities that the chief and the secretary have outlaid for the, uh, for the Air Force, and then uh, operationalizing the sustainment strategic framework is critically important. And that really is kind of the, probably the backbone of this priority, you know, as we really look at, at uh, kind of bringing forth those efforts, whether it's the ready aircraft metric, whether we're talking about um, repair node integration, you know, and a few other elements, theory of constraints is a huge part of that as well, as we're trying to do things, um, you know, smarter, determine where we can, you uh, but, you know, improve our processes to increase readiness as well. And then, of course, it also gets into infrastructure investment strategies as well. Our engineers know that, you know, we just can't start laying bricks and building buildings all over. The The budget just doesn't allow it. So where is that infrastructure most important? Where Where is it most needed? And oh, by the way, can we do it for, for the right cost? So just across the board, when you look at that focus readiness, it's, it's really getting after, hey, let's increase that readiness. Let's control costs. And, and in addition to that, I think it's important to know that not all airmen and units need to be 100% ready 100% of the time. And that could spin off into an Afrogen model discussion, but let, let's not go there in the interest yeah. of time, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but it, you know, we know that we've got, you know, the different bins in the Afrogen model and it allows us when we come out of the ready and commit phases, right, that we can actually, you know, kind of recuperate not only our weapon systems, but also our airmen and then any facilities potentially used and resupplies and everything else. Mm-hmm. So that kind of just lends to that as well. So I think it's it's a it's a unique priority. Um, it's a very difficult priority because we're talking about money. Um, all the parties talk about money, but this is where we're really talking about the investment of those dollars to really support all the other elements of this strategy and really the priorities of the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Have you read uh, General Brown and General Berger's joint paper uh, redefining readiness. Yes. Phenomenal perspective, right? I've mentioned this on multiple podcasts at this point, but I think it's just so poignant how I just, and it, and it keeps on circling back in my mind because when you look, they mentioned MC80 specifically and said, hey, if, if MC80 truly worked, then why have we not effectively deterred our enemy, right? Why has this not changed? the strategic picture so it's you know readiness isn't always you know to your point when you're talking about okay increasing you know readiness reducing cost and then and and if we're talking about specific readiness levels like it's not always tied to that there's so many different there's so many different avenues that that we can take that you know here um to to emphasize what readiness truly means right and then I i like to tie it back to all right our frontline airmen. What can we do individually to like and like as you know? What can you do? The, the intangibles of readiness, right? Because like air, airmen aren't tied to that MC rate. Um, what can you do as uh, a section chief or a squadron commander to prepare your individual, you know, airmen across across your unit uh, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally? 
technically and tactical proficiency. And 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 we might not need a hundred percent of our airmen, you know, at any, you know, right now at any but at any given time in the future fight, we're gonna need a hundred percent from each airman. And um uh, and, and that's ultimately gonna drive towards, you know, when, when we're talking about uh, you know, bringing it back to that tactical level. Like, hey, that, this is what you can do. Hey, there's going to be a lot of other things that are going to be out of your direct control when it comes to how the force spends the budget. That's right. right. That- um, and, and all these other factors. Um, but, but what can we do to continue to be a force multiplier? Because it's no real secret that the, the free, open-minded uh, American citizen is, is enough of a threat to an authoritarian regime, right? Right. And 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 we got tens of thousands of those, uh, you know, in the force today, um, that that continue to add towards that deterrence, you know, just you know, geopolitically, you know, speaking, right? Um, it's amazing. It's amazing how scared you, you look at it right now, uh, in, in Russia, with all of these protests going on, you know, not wanting to, you know, you know, to to avoid the the draft. I mean, that's it's a huge, a huge deal. Authoritarians are scared of free thinking individuals, and and uh, that continues to add towards that readiness. And um, maybe it gets a little outside the scope of of all these specifics, but I, no, I think it's a key component. No, I think that's a good a good point, Matt. I think you really kind of bring it back to once again. Well, if I'm an airman at a unit, you know, what can I really do, you know, to increase the readiness of my unit? Because um, readiness is sometimes very hard to measure. You know, very many key performance indicators kind of lend to that. We we don't have a a readiness you know measurement that says yet yeah, we're 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 good to go across the board. But you got a lot of different measurements that kind of bring them all together. You can get a good idea of how ready your unit is. But I think you're really going to go back to and it and it kind of ties back to innovation in a way. It kind of talks about kind of theory of constraints. Is we want our airmen looking at their environment, looking at the culture of the unit that they're in. And understanding, hey, there's an opportunity here to maybe do something a little bit better, something smarter, make it easier, make it more effective, you know, more efficient, whatever it may be. And that's at, at all levels. And I'll I'll bring it back out of a an, an example that I've seen that I've been a part of is literally just, you know, at, at a base. I'm, I won't name any bases. Uh, some people may may question may question the story because it was so long ago, but they can also <laughs> rectify it to to 100% accuracy. <laughs> But we were on a base, two different types of weapon systems. Their hangar was in the middle of our flight line, you know, where they parked their, you know, our airplanes. And our hangar was down in the middle of all of their airplanes and flight line and their support sections. So literally we had, you know, airmen driving back and forth and all of this wasted time. We're like, why don't we just swap hangars? And with the minor investment, we were able to, to modify the hangars to meet those different MDSs. And all of a sudden, those two units became so much more efficient. Another fighter flight line, we just like restriped the flight line and we were able to, to get more fighters in a in a smaller space and we weren't so spread out. And so that way, you know, aircraft, you know, 5044 was, you know, at the furthest spot. Now it was 150 yards closer just from restriping the flight line, you know, and just even ideas like that, you know, tool check-in, check-out procedures, hey, how we order parts, and then now bringing in technologies. It's those types of things, those innovations that we see today, especially those that really impact those processes. That all increases readiness. And for the most part, there's not a lot of cost associated with it. And and that's where everyone probably just knows needs to know and understand, and I'm sure they do, but just empower and develop that culture that allows our airmen to bring their ideas forward. And that could be just something as simple as, you know, what if we restripe this or we redirected the traffic flow in the flight line or or whatever it may be. And because um, there's a lot of great ideas out there and uh, we'll never have enough resources. We'll never have enough time, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, trying to find those areas of efficiency are, are huge and, and impacts. And that small little piece at one base, you start adding them up across the enterprise and we'll see tremendous impacts. And uh, there's no perfect unit out there. There's always room for improvement. And I've always recommended to anyone that's ever worked for me or I've come in contact with uh, or has, you know, been near me. I always try to to leave a job or a place better than how I found it. Not to say that the guy or gal before me didn't do a good job, but I want to take it. I want to make it better with, with what they made it right. They've left me a, a great opportunity. Let me continue to make it. And over time, you just see 
And that's usually about efficiencies and effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And that's really a big part of it. Um, but that's, I think, where we really have, have our airmen kind of seeing ourselves to, to, to work and, and think in those in that mindset to, to make us more efficient, efficient and effective. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now let, let's get to the, um, to the last priority here. Um, adaptive facing. I mean, this is a big, I mean, this is a big topic. It is absolutely right. Uh, and we can, we can go on and on about this. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to have a zillion follow, follow questions or perspectives. And we want that. We want all the follow-up questions. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, so talk to us about adaptive basing. Yeah. So, of course, it would be great if we had got an engineer in here or a defender as well. But I think what we really talk about is, is we know as we look at the ACE scheme of maneuver, we know that we're going to go to locations across the globe in small packages and we're not going to have or may not have. I said I, can't, I won't be so absolute and say we're not going to have, but we may not have a lot of those, a lot of that infrastructure that is really required. Um, such as hard billets, golf courses, no kidding on that part of it, but, uh, you know, hard billets, uh, runway thing, you know, things on the runway, you know, potential lighting, you know, may not have stripes on the parking ramp, may not have vehicles to maneuver across a flight line, uh, limited fuel, you know, you name a lot of different, uh, constraints that we might have, but that's just part of it is we're not wanting through the A schema maneuver to operate for long periods of time. But one thing that we have to have especially when we get closer to that pacing adversary. Let's talk about China. They, they've, they've got an arsenal. They've got range with that arsenal. We certainly don't want to put, uh, you know, multi-million dollar weapon systems on the ground and in range. And we certainly don't want to put airmen within that range unless there is a significant defensive posture and ability to, uh, to protect our airmen and our weapon systems. So that's hard, right? That's a, that's a hard problem. Um, you know, I don't, it's, um, we need, we need some new technologies there. Our defenders are working really hard, you know, um, to, to bring in some very tactical type defenses, defensive systems. We're working with our joint partners to ensure as we plan, maneuver, and move that the systems that they have and own that they're investing in, Hey, don't forget about the air force and locations we could potentially be, be about, but then let's just say, you know, we do, you know, take an attack, right. Then we've got to be able to recover. And, and and ensure that we can repair the base and get it back to an operational status as quickly as possible. You know, and that comes into to rapid runway repair. That comes into the ability to find, you know, UXOs quicker and faster, you know, when there's so many technologies out there that help us do that. So you got to have those elements in place as well um, as we try to, to execute this, this fight. And then if you look across the board, the control system aspect of it too is everything that we do and use is probably on some sort of managed by a computer or on some sort of uh, cloud or you know some sort of computer system. We've also got to be able to control that, understand intrusions, understand attacks, and that comes into it as well. So we've got to we got to be able to defend our bases if they do get attacked. We got to be able to recover, and uh, you know as we use dispersal you know, elements as well, you know, make sure that is effective so that we're protecting our airmen, protect our weapon systems and uh, be able to recover from attack as well. So that's that resilient, adaptive basing elements that we really talk about and really try hard to, to get after. And that goes back to a lot of the money trail and what are those investments that we're making so we can, in fact, you know, um, execute the A scheme and maneuver. Mm-hmm. We look at adaptive basing and, and we look at, uh, innovation i think it's interesting not to go be a nerd about world war ii again but you know like those aerated aerated runways like you know those metal sheets yep you know it was invented by a sergeant yeah amazing right just by by a a frontline soldier in the it was either the tennessee or the louisiana maneuvers back in 1940 um where soldiers airmen they were empowered to innovate and change it's like hey let's find things that that are different here like let, let's look at let's look at what works let's see what doesn't work and an e5 created a technology that was able to put runways across the entire pacific theater and then also in the european theater as well but you know especially the pacific theater with the lack of infrastructure that was there let's create those adaptive airmen to find those ideas you know, in those exercises, 
uh, in that hard, realistic training um, to come up with similar solutions to that. That's right. Um, and 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 as I look, you know, around the room, and I see a lot of blue on these maps, like it's it's going to be difficult to you know uh, to operate in, in those particular environments. And um, yeah. I got I got so many thoughts swirling around my head I can't like figure out like I I can't figure out one point I want to pinpoint here but I'm not sure if there's anything else running through your head that you want to talk about. No, so Matt, I think you kind of bring it up right. It's the um, and, and I'll I'll steal uh, Brigadier General Sean Tyler's quote, um, former PAC FA4 now at DLA Aviation. You know he said the 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 process at which PACAF is getting after this complex problem is we, we got to build it first, you know, then we've got to fill it. Mm-hmm. And then we've got to sustain it, and um, and and they're really that's kind of the 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 process or the the pathway that they're looking at, because you're right you you can't you can't do it all at, at the same time. There's got to be a methodical way that we we get after it, but also knowing for those that hopefully get the chance to go to evolve and read the strategy, um, <laughs> you you kind of got to see the the discussion that we've had how it really all ties together. Is we might be able to have all the adaptive, resilient basing that we have. But if we haven't figured out the other priorities, right, it, it won't matter. Just mm-hmm. like if we we can develop the airmen we need, you know, we, we've got to have some focused readiness. We've got to have some persistent logistics and the ability to conduct logistics under attack. It is all intertwined. It is all connected. And it becomes difficult, without a doubt, I mean, as we try to move forward. Um because what we don't want to do, and I think our, our senior leadership is doing a really good job, is ensuring that we're not competing against ourselves for many of the scarce resources that are required to really uh, make this strategy a, a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a marathon. It, it's not a sprint. Um, if it was a sprint, we'd, we need a whole lot more money than what we've got. So it's it's a kind of a, a, a methodical process that um, kind of, each of the priorities kind of working together, that unity of effort, you know, across the enterprise. It's our match comps, it's our bases, it's our allies and partners all coming together to make sure that we've got um, all of our pieces and everything squared away. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. No, a- absolutely it is. And um, I-, I think one other comment, you know, and we'll, if you have any other questions, be happy to answer them, is it's, it, this is about operationalizing logistics, having logistics superiority, to ensure that we provide that logistics deterrence, you know, that is needed to ensure that we don't have to get into a defeat mode. Be ready if we have to, but if we can continue to, like I mentioned earlier, um, ensure that China says every day, not today, then then we're doing our job effectively. Mm-hmm. At, to tie back to just looking at how all of this hypothetically can unfold and and we look at the the red rings right Mm -hmm. uh in that scenario we are going to lose bases we are going to lose airmen um and and we're going to need to be resilient not just from an infrastructure standpoint but as as an individual leader uh and an airman and warrior to to bounce back to bounce back from that right and and as we, we talk about repairing these bases, like the the mental and physical uh, friction of of understanding the the realities of of combat and 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 and, and war fighting and and I'm an, an armchair general here, you know, because I've I've never I've never been in combat, never I you know I've never, never been to war, but I I do understand that we. To go back to the agile airman, to go back to the warrior and the warfighter, uh, and, and the maintainer and the logistician that we need, um, that is the backbone. That is going to be the backbone of of uh, um, ensuring that this entire strategy is is effective. Right? That's right. And um, and and just continuing to to emphasize that I think is is important, and it's incumbent upon our frontline leaders. Right. It's ultimately. Respond, you know, squadron commanders are, you know, are, are leading, you know, at the tip of the spear there. And, That's right. And are responsible for the development and training of their airmen. Uh, but it doesn't stop there, right? You, you, there are things that uh, a young staff sergeant can do to, to train his or her senior airmen, A1Cs, 
Um, there are things that section chiefs can do or flight commanders. Um, doesn't matter what your job or, or bill it is. Um, it is incumbent upon our frontline leaders to ensure that we are capable of uh, adaptive basing, that we are capable of logistics under attack, um, and, to, and to focus on that readiness. Uh, That's so right. So we can have, a, you know. That's right. And, and to that point as well, I think it's um, it's a little bit of a, of a morbid discussion, but it's one that's you got to have. Have to. You've got to know and understand that um, that that this, this these are preparations. These are preparations to, you know, hopefully deny, mm-hmm. you know, or or deter, should I say, a um, a a conflict, a kinetic conflict. But ultimately, if it comes to the point where we have to defeat, that we're certainly ready to do that. But another element, and, and you've kind of been brought it up a few times and, and you're very well read and I can't emphasize enough and we've all heard it right and even probably as I was coming up through the ranks I would probably do some casual reading you know but I probably would say now especially after my tour on the joint staff they've probably taken it as a must to read and it was after uh, Lieutenant General Mike Dana from the United States Marine Corps had really talked about the need to understand your adversary just not understand them militarily, understand their history, understand how they think, understand um, why they make the decisions they make, understand what is their end state, what is their end goal. So I've, I've increased my my uh, my reading library to a lot about the, the Chinese way and not just about how they war, but their culture, their history, and because uh, understanding your adversary is going to be critically important. You know, um, as we continue to uh, look to deter, you know, the peer adversary, and especially as we look at it through our logistics superiority. Mm-hmm. And also, not to just stop there from an education perspective on on Chinese, you know, culture and, and, uh, and, and strategy, but also our joint partners and, and our allies as well. And, and uh, I think a, a fantastic book that I've been reading lately, I believe it's called Red Star Rising. About, mm-hmm. Yes. About... Uh, Chinese naval strategy. The world is majority, majority water. Right? <laughs> they control ninety percent of trade on the seas. I believe that's a statistic. It's something crazy. It is crazy, right? Right. right. Um, and uh, understanding how our, you know, how our navies are competing, how our, uh, you know, our armies are competing, and. And, and the air is also is an interesting conversation when it, when we're talking specifically about the PLAA um, because they haven't had a whole lot of experience in the air, right? Uh, their their air force is rather it's relatively new in in um, in strategic thought and tactical implementation. Uh, and another interesting fact, like in the 1970s, the PLA didn't even have a rank structure, right? That's right. They 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 scrubbed it. Yep. Uh, so. So there's a, a, they're almost operating off of a blank canvas and it's, it's just uh, but if you understand their thought process and like really like, and there's another, cannot recommend this book enough, Culture Hacks. And uh, when you look on whatever website you want to go to buy it, um, it, it's called, it's titled Culture Hacks and has a, an American, a Chinese and a Japanese flag. It talks about the really like the the true like the thought process and like the the perspectives that um that each culture has and how that's affected uh like just individual decision making all the way to geopolitical decision making absolutely and it and it is it is absolutely phenomenal and eye-opening uh and it and it's and sometimes i feel like all these books on chinese strategy are the same and just like you know whether you know digital silk road is a good one long game is a good one there's a there's another you know handful of really good ones out there but um, I bleed, read till you bleed, as General Dana would say. That's right. So. Absolutely correct. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, any last thoughts as we, as we wrap up here, we covered, uh, um, all the, the priorities here, uh, I, I believe and, and very thoroughly that not often does a colonel and a staff sergeant get to just bros being dudes talking about strategy that's right. here that's right so. absolutely you know i don't know if that's dangerous or not right you yeah. know uh, the, the two of us sitting in here talking but no i think a final comment is is hopefully what we've done here matt is probably hopefully generated the interest and and getting 
our airmen throughout our enterprise, really throughout the Air Force. You don't have to be a logistician to, to want to go read our strategy or understand our strategy a little bit more. But hopefully we've, we've piqued some interest, you know, and, and folks want to know a little bit more. And I know that we're going to have some opportunities at the, uh, the Logistics Officer Association Symposium in March in St. Louis um, to, to dive a little bit deeper with, uh, you know, some of the Logistics University opportunities out there as well into this subject. And, and that's going to be a great opportunity, but uh, I think that's what we hopefully, hopefully we did it. It was a great conversation and, and your time and your effort and the things that you've done for our Air Force and Test Rack have been second to none, Matt, and appreciate you taking the time and 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 making this happen for us. It's critically important. And, you know, hey, logisticians, we're, we're warriors just like the rest of the Air Force. And that ability to provide a strategic deterrent through logistics is going to be critically important to the future war fight or the current war fight when it really comes down to it. Thanks, Fly Matt. Great win. job. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.